Okay, if you're here for solar power, this is the right class. This is a repeat from yesterday. And if you're here for pruning, that's across the lake over there. It was here this morning, but it's over there now. <laughs> so. Okay, and you're all gonna wanna sit probably like right here because this is the biggest screen we got. I'm out. Okay. Normally I'd have handouts, but we ran out of them yesterday. So this, all the numbers are up here as well. We'll go with that. Okay, to get started, let's see. My name is Ryan Booth. I'm a general contractor in California as well as having sub-licenses in heating, air conditioning, and electrical. I'm also a real estate agent in California, licensed real estate agent in California. Let's go ahead and start with a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to come together and learn and experience what you'd have for us in the world for knowledge and help us to have the wisdom to apply that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, welcome to Solar Power by the Numbers. This class is all about the dollars and numbers involved with solar systems, whether grid tie or off-grid, and what makes sense from an economic standpoint. Let's get started. Two rules. Rule number one, do your own research. Rule number two, what is your time worth? If your time worth is probably worth more than $150 an hour, then head out the door, go hire a contractor, do whatever you want. Because you're probably gonna lose money trying to do your own project. That being said, if you enjoy doing work, do your own thing, then let's stick around, let's run through the parts cost, and I encourage people to tackle their own projects if possible. Oh, by the way, I'm probably wrong. Why am I wrong? Local rules, 50 states, 3,100, uh, 43 counties, 1,900 corporate cities, 19,000 corporate cities, 29,000 fire departments, 200 major utilities. Every one of these has rules that affect solar, whether it's regulatory, fee, or other factors. All of these can affect everything going on with installing a system, code-wise, etc particularly utilities for net metering. One note on local rules, about 90% of them across the board are the same across the country. However, there's a lot of variance, so you have to find that last 10%, how is it different, how is it gonna affect your system. Power 101, watts. Amps times volt equals watts. Watts divided by volts equals amps, etc. It's a circle. We're gonna talk mostly, almost always about watts. Look at that, the laser doesn't show up on the screen. <laughs> so we're gonna talk almost always about watts. And the reason we do that is because it's universal, whether it's volts, amps, or, or any of those things, it translates across all that. It's a unit of measure for power. Amps, you have a battery bank of measure of volts and amps. And at the bottom right here, you can see 30 amps times 50 volts is 1,500 watts, 1.5 kilowatts. And then 220 volts times 6.25 amps is 1.5 kilowatts. So the wattage translates depending if your voltage or amperage is different. So if you're working with batteries and then the end use of higher voltage, you turn everything into watts that way you don't get confused crossing over. 1,000 watts equals one kilowatt. Kilowatt hours, we're gonna do a lot of talking about kilowatt hours. That's a main unit measure we'll be talking about today. That's amount of power used in a given time period. It's a measure of volume of power. It's just something to give us a reference point when we're talking about how much power is used on a daily or minute basis, et cetera. Solar systems, wrong one. 
What is a grid-tied solar system? It's basically solar panels that take energy from the sun, they go through an inverter, and it dumps back into the power used by the house and the grid simultaneously. That's a grid-tied solar system. Its main purpose is to offset the power you use in your house or other applications down to zero so you're not actually paying for power from the grid, if possible. It requires to do a success, requires a net metering agreement with an electrical company because net metering requires that during the daylight you produce more power than you use and at nighttime you're buying power back from the grid and then it zeroes out at the end of the month, year, etc. when to true everything up at the end of the billing cycle. However, if you do not have a net metering agreement, then guess what? Nighttime you're still buying power and they don't care about how much extra power you made during the day. So again, to be successful economic and grid tie system comes down to your local utility and what agreement you can make with them. I'll take quick questions during the presentation, but if you have more, keep a track of them and we'll do a Q&A at the end. Quick question. Do you have to be tied at all into the grid? No, you do not have to be tied into the grid and we'll get to the economic side in a minute with the off-grid off -grid system. Off-grid solar. Off-grid is the same thing as the grid and tie in a sense. You have solar panels that go through, in this case, charge controllers to a battery bank, back out through an inverter and you feed the house. You also have a generator coming in for when you don't have enough sunlight. It's important. So the difference here is you're not tied to the grid. The other th difference here is you're limited, very limited by the capacity of batteries and other factors of the system of how much power you can use on a daily basis or even at one time. Grid, you have unlimited resources if you want to pay for it. We'll get into the economics of this in a minute and calculations. Hybrid system is the combination of two. You have uh, off-grid system basically also with grid tied in. This makes sense if you're at a lo location that has a lot of down power grid time. Maybe if you're in Northern California, turn off the power for three or four days in the summertime of high winds a couple of times. Those kind of applications where you have a lot of gr down grid time, this starts to make sense. Generally, for general backup, it does it because of the economics involved. Grid type parts cost, let's get into the dollars and cents here. This is broken down by per watt, you know, 65 cents to $1 per watt. Why is this? This is so that you can easily scale. You can scale the cost depending on the size of the system you need. That's why I broke it down per watt here. Is this absolutely accurate? Not quite. For instance, inverters, I put 20 cents per watt. This is assuming you're putting in maybe a six or 8,000 watt solar array. The inverter is more of a fixed price and you may move from $1,800 to $2,800 for your inverters in the size of your array, but that's a fixed unit, so if you have a really small system, it's still gonna cost the same, so it's not quite accurate per watt, but this is the pretty good average of what it's gonna cost you for the parts. All these prices we have today are for the parts costs. They don't include labor, there's not a contract price. I have some of those referenced later, but this is what the parts would be if you bought them and put them together yourself. So, so here's your grid tie cost, cost parts. As you can see at the end of the day, we're 130 to 215 per watt is what your cost for the parts to install a grid tie system would be. And you're gonna have to have a set of plans if you're hooking to the grid because the utility company is gonna want plans and permits to make that happen. Sample grid tie system, this one's in San Diego. Uh, 8,000 watt array, total array, total cost $9,600. That's the panels, optimizers, etc. You're gonna have to have optimizers for any kind of roof mount system because it's required for rapid shutdown for fire code, nationwide national electric code now. So an uh, optimizer turns off the power, the little box behind the panel turns off the power when, a, when the inverter shuts down. If somebody shuts the power off to the house or throws the disconnect switch and shuts down within 30 seconds, it's at each, every panel has one. That way the whole system on the roof is down to 30 volts and not more than that. Otherwise you'll have strings of power at 150, 60 DC volts DC that are, you can't turn off because the panels can't be shut off. They're in the sun, they make power. And somebody cuts into one of those wires, now you have a problem. Uh, 
inverter and wiring. You got inverter dumping into the meter here. Plans for missing fees, 1100, 12736. What's that going to make you money on a grid tie system? The whole point of a grid tie system is to offset your bill using net meter and our similar, similar uh, technique. What's this system going to make? pvwatts.nrel.gov. PV That's PV is in pvwatts.nrel.gov for the people on the recording. That is run, this is run by the US Department of Energy. It's a free solar calculator. It's an industry standard. Everybody uses it. You go there. You put in the size of your system. You put a few, select a few other options. It already has a loss calculator built in because you do lose power from the panels and through the inverter. Um, and you can play with your tilt and how far southwest versus your azimuth is for the, the angle of the panels. So play with these numbers in different locations. You'll see the difference between summer and winter output. Right down here is the cost per kilowatt hour. If you're hooking to a grid tie system, you can put your average cost for your local and it'll tell you how much money you're going to offset during the year during production. Here's the results. San Diego area, you're making 13,400 13, kilowatt hours per year. Tells you, you can see January, you're making about 870. June, you're making 1,300. So you can see the winter summer difference there. And at about 30 cents a kilowatt, you're going to offset about $5,300 a year in power that you didn't have to buy. Do you actually offset that? Not quite, because utilities put in rules, uh, minimum connection fees, other factors that eat into some of that savings. However, really quick numbers off the top of your head, you can already see that your $12,000 system is going to get paid back in like two and a half years. You're gonna, 30 cents a kilowatt hour? 30 cents a kilowatt hour is actually San Diego area is now up to about 40, 40 plus cents per kilowatt hour on average. Yep. Most of California is running over 40 cents a kilowatt hour on average. It is expensive. Okay, net metering. Guess what? Utilities don't make any money on solar systems if you own a solar system. They're losing money. So if you're in a regulated environment, such as California, with high electric rates, they do everything you can to make solar systems uneconomical for the end user. I shouldn't say it's intentional, but it's the end result. I'm going to ignore the politics of the situation. So this is what your time of day metering looks like when you go on a solar system in one of the California utilities. You have a different fee rate for different blocks of time throughout the day. Starting at midnight to 6 a.m., you're one thing. 6 to 10, you're another price. Uh, this is March and April. You have super off-peak between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. for two months of the year. And then from 4 to 9 p.m., you get this really high price here, and then you're back to off-peak here. What does this mean? It means that if you're generating power throughout the day with solar systems, you are credited back for the power generated during any particular time point during the day. So if you're generating 80% of your power between 6 a.m. and 4 p.m., you're going to get credited at this rate. But guess what? At 8 p.m. when you're at home, you're buying it at this rate. So it makes it less economical. You have to put more solar panels on to compensate for the extra cost for that power you're buying later in the day when you can't offset the, the production of it. And then they have a different rate for weekends and holidays, so now all this power generated, it's, it's a super off-peak rate. So these are different prices per kilowatt. This might be 25 cents a kilowatt, this might be 35, this is probably 65 cents a kilowatt. So they tier it all throughout the day, so you have to oversize your system to compensate for the structure of the time of day metering. And by the way, in California, if you go on a solar, you're going to be forced on the time of day metering. If you don't have solar, you can still do a st standard, grid, uh, standard tiered system where it's just so much per month and then you move on to the next level. 
What is your power cost? There's a breakdown. As you can see, average about 40 cents a kilowatt. Peaking out at 65, bottoming out at about 30. And there's summer and there's winter, off peak, on time, all these kind of things. You can break it down and kind of get an average. It's not easy to figure out necessarily. By the way, that's not everywhere in California. This is Surprise Valley Electric Co-op in Modoc County, North, Northeast California. The average cost is eight cents a kilowatt. Anza Co-op in Riverside County is 15 cents a kilowatt average price. If you're next door on Southern California Edison, you're back about the 40 cents rate. So local utilities make a difference on economics installing solar grid tie systems specifically. In addition to that, the local co-ops though, may not be friendly to solar either because it's a net zero game. So if a co-op is for the benefit of users, if somebody's on solar, all the users have to compensate for the cost. Anza Valley Co-op, for instance, is not economic for solar the way they have a high minimum connection fee if you put solar into the point that it doesn't make sense for the average house to be on solar. Okay, system cost, 12.7. It's a contract price, I'd be charging about 22,000 to install that system. You get a 26% federal tax credit off that system price, and that can be carried forward multiple years until you use it up if you're not paying enough income tax in the first year to do it. And also counts for the contract price as well. It's not tied to parts or anything like that. It's whatever it costs to put the solar on. You're gonna be offsetting this. You're gonna be saving about $4,500 a year. Payback time is about two years after you have your tax credit. Makes a lot of economic sense to put a solar system in on a grid tied in a high price area. You go up to Monarch County, you're looking at about a 10 year payback, maybe more, maybe 12 or 13. Does it make sense? Not so much. Local utility rules and rates dictate whether grid tie is economical or not. That's the bottom line. How much power do you use per month? How much does it cost per kilowatt? Where are you located? And what does your net utility have net meter and a feed-in tariff? Some utilities don't. They don't care if you dump solar back in, but they're not going to give you anything for it. You will reduce your bill during daytime hours because you're generating power, but they're not going to care about the excess power you make. Sorry, we're not going to give you any credit for that. Other places have a feed-in tariff, which means you buy power off one meter, you sell it back off another meter. And there's a split between that. And sometimes you can win huge, and other times, depending on what the rates are, you're wasting your time. So that's another stru fee structure to create for, for net, instead of net metering, to do a feed-in tariff. So these are other techniques to work with the utilities provide for solar on a, for customer-owned solar. And some utilities, like in Hawaii, say, guess what? We're not going to give you anything. We don't even want your system hooked up to the grid anymore because they're having instability issues because if 50% of the customers have solar and you get a cloud that goes over an island, all of a sudden your, your electric spike just spiked by 300% in, in five minutes. It's really hard to run a grid with the stability when you have those kind of things going on. Off-grid solar systems. That's pretty much for grid tie. I'll take any quick questions on grid tie. Any really quick questions? California, we, California, no, all states, there's no state that I know that requires you to have grid type power if you don't want it. Now, economically, I don't know specifically, but as far as I know, you can go off grid anytime you want. That being said, economically, it's almost always cheaper to be connected to the grid, and we'll get to that in a moment. Okay, off grid systems. By the way, California does require solar systems on any new constructed house. So any new house going to California will require to have a solar system on it. 
it's not, you don't have to put a solar system for the full capacity to house. You can put a kind of a minimal system. And there's some exemptions for shading and some other odds and ends. Yes. Wow. Welcome to California. Okay. <laughs> Off-grid solar systems. The big difference here is you're not hooked to the grid. You don't have a limited supply of power while hooked to the grid. Basic components of an off-grid system are solar panels, power in. Solar panels are the source. You can also use hydro. You can use wind. There's other sources of power. Generally, hydro is an excellent source of power. It's one of the best. But it's very, very few properties have the three elements you required. You have to have a constant, high enough volume of water flow to be worth it. You have to have elevation drop to create pressure. And you have to have the legal ability to manipulate that water. Most properties have a stream running through them. You can't dam that stream. You can't affect that wetland area. So you can't manipulate that water legally, even though it's running across your property. So that's the challenge of hydro. It's very few properties that have the ability to, to economically do hydro. Wind, again, it's location specific. You actually have to have sustained winds of 10 to 15 miles an hour to start creating appreciable energy production. Can you make power at five mile an hour wind? Yes, it'll spin the generator, but you're, you're getting such small volume for the cost of the unit to install, it's not really worth it. So you need those higher sustained winds. And everyone's like, yeah, it was super windy here. Yeah, we get gusts like 50 miles an hour. Yeah, occasionally in the afternoon, five days a year. It's not enough to make investing in the wind worth it on a daily basis. In fact, most of the people, if you're going to live in a location that does have enough wind on a daily basis, most people don't want to live there anyway because it's windy all day long every day. So economics of wind, the only place that starts really making sense are western Washington, northern Montana, places with a lot of cloud cover and a decent amount of wind, particularly in the wintertime, to start compensating for the lack of sun if you're doing an off-grid system. It starts becoming economically practical. Okay. Solar panels power in, charge controller has to manipulate the power coming to panels, change the voltages, match the batteries, charge the batteries carefully. Inverter takes the power back out of the batteries, feeds the house, feeds all your other power needs. You need a generator. Why do you need a generator? Because the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day every day. A lot of places, even sunny places like Arizona, you'll get three or four days of cloud in a row, and now you need a generator to kick on and charge your batteries back up again because the sun's not there. Daily energy use. If you're going to talk off-grid, the first thing you need to do, the number one thing, is determine how much power you need on a daily basis. You can't even start discussing price and usage until you know this number, or at least an approximate number. This is a typical house, 15, 1,700 square feet. Everything in this house is gas, gas cooking, gas water heater, gas uh, clothes dryer. All those power usages are gas because they use a lot of power. Power is expensive when you're off-grid, particularly capacity. So this is a typical house, <coughs> gas components, and this is what it would use in a day. You've got two kilowatt hours per day for refrigerator, small appliances, toasters, microwaves, that kind of thing, hair dryers. Uh, two kilowatts, lights, we'll throw a kilowatt on our tech, a couple of computers, maybe a cell phone, Wi-Fi router, two kilowatts a day. Washer dryers, about a kilowatt per load. Um, gas furnace, particularly in the wintertime, you're going to run about three kilowatts per kilowatt hours. I'm slipping into kilowatts, it's kilowatt hours because it's a unit measure, not a single moment of power. So kilowatt hours in the wintertime. Freezer, this is country living. People are going to have a freezer for food, so there's another two kilowatt hours a day. And then you've got two for other stuff. Plus, you have about another three kilowatt hours a day for water pumping. This is a huge variable. If you're on a well, how, how deep is the well? How high are you lifting that water? What are you pressurizing it to? 
etc. In a lot of cases, you'll be taking that water, pumping it into a storage tank, and then repressurizing it with a booster pump. People are like, well, that's double handling. Not really, because if you take the well pump and you pressurize it into a storage tank, a pressure tank, you still have to boost up the extra 50 PSI for the house to use. Well, you're doing the same thing by dumping it into a tank and then taking a booster pump and repressurizing it at 50 PSI. Do you have some efficiency losses? Yes, it's not drastic. Our total per day is about 18 kilowatt hours per day, or about 560 kilowatt hours per month. The reason we do month is because on the calculation sheets next page, we'll see monthly totals. That's important. Unusual items, air conditioning. If you're in Arizona, you can probably run the AC in the afternoon because you'll be generating extra power in the summertime with your system. Electric hot water heater, 15 kilowatt hours a day. Do you really want to double your house usage just to have electric hot water? That's why you have a gas hot, hot water heater in locations if you're off-grid. Cold room, they're about this, that's a 14, 14 by 14 cold room on our place. It uses about 12 kilowatt hours a day. If you're an ag, you may be putting a cold room in. You may be spending hundreds of kilowatt hours a day on water pumping if you're running large ag. That's a separate discussion, different calculations, but keep that in mind if you're planning to do that. This is your total usage. We're going to work with 18 kilowatt hours per day, or about 560 per month. Sandpoint, Idaho. 12 kilowatt, 12 kW solar array. That's 12,000 watt of rated panel capacity installed. Guess what? We need 560 per month. Well, we got 490 in December, 530 in January. We're not really hitting our numbers, are we? It's a, it's a 12, uh, 12 kW system. Oh, by the way, in June, July, 1,800 kilowatt hours a month. We're three times our needed capacity. It's Sandpoint, Idaho. You've got a huge split summer to winter, three to one almost. So guess what? 12 kW array is not going to make it in the wintertime. You can drop to 8 kW array. It's even worse, but you're making it from, oh, probably March through October. You're hitting your numbers. And then the rest of the month, you either have to modify your lifestyle to lose, use less power. It is Sandpoint, so you could probably throw the freezer out in the, out in the back porch and leave it alone. Um, or you have to start running a generator more. Generator power is about 50 cents per kilowatt hour for fuel cost if you're generating power via a diesel or electric generator. Diesel is a little bit less than that, or gas generator. Okay, same system, Wilcox, Arizona. We're half the, we're half the size of the solar array. We're 12 kW instead of, or we're 6 kW instead of 12 kW. Guess what? We're covering our numbers. January is 760. Summer is 1,000. You can see our winter summer splits very marginal here. It's Wilcox, Arizona. It's sunny. It's much further south. This is why location is so dependent on your solar array size for economics. It's half the array and it meets all of our needs for the typical house. The one in Sandpoint wasn't even quite doing it with twice the size in the wintertime. By the way, this tracker from the U.S. Department of Energy for calculating for solar, it does take in all the historical weather patterns for that location, cloud cover, all those factors are already built into this, ready to go. Tulsa, Oklahoma, a 6KW array still meets our numbers, barely in the wintertime. And you can see our numbers are lower in the summertime. Why? Tulsa, Oklahoma, you got a lot more cloud cover in the summertime. More humidity, less power compared to Wilcox. Batteries. Batteries are the Achilles heel of off-grid systems. You can make power, and you can take that power and quickly turn it back into high-voltage power as much as you want through inverters. Economically, storage is the issue. You've got to store the power somewhere in the meantime. You're not using it continuously. So the challenge with batteries is two things. One is they're high capital expense up front, and they wear out. You have a limited lifespan. Traditionally, 
the industries use lead-acid batteries. That was the industry standard. They're still the cheapest option to some degree. They do require maintenance. Flooded red-acid batteries require monthly maintenance. They require quarterly maintenance. You've got to check the water levels on it. You've got to maintain them, or you will ruin your batteries by not maintaining them. They also have a limited lifespan. The main important issue of batteries is capacity, life cycles, and depth of discharge. Number one factor of capacity is amp hours is usually how they're rated. You can convert that into kilowatts very quickly with a quick little bit of math. And you want to see what your total capacity is. Then you're going to look at the life cycles of that battery. Typical flood lead assets usually run about, about 1,200 1, cycles at 80% depth of discharge. That's an important number. If you look at about 1,200 cycles at 80% depth of discharge. You need to look at depth of discharge because that tells you how much power you can pull out of that battery before it's going to start tanking in life cycles. Most flood lead assets are rated at 80% depth of discharge. A lot of your AGM batteries rate at 50% depth of discharge because they don't like being pulled down to 80 as much. Your lithiums are usually rated at 80% depth of discharge. A lot of them will say 100, go read the fine print. They actually, their life cycles tank after 80%. That's usually what happens. So you generally we calc everything for 80% depth of discharge for battery banks. That's where we're at. Okay, old rule of thumb, battery banks twice the size of your daily usage. That's rough. Depends where you are, what you're doing, but it's a really quick rule of thumb. So for our 18 kilowatt hour per day usage, we're gonna put a 36 kilowatt hour per battery bank on our sample system. Why? Because you probably wanna run it uh, one night, one day, one more night before turning the generator on. You don't wanna be starting to generate every single morning because you didn't quite hit your capacity overnight or during the day before. So, start moving on with batteries. Life cycle cost. Uh, by the way, the names for brands and components in here aren't endorsements or a combination of any brand or component. I'm just using them as industry examples for what's out there at a price point for using an example. Capacity for an amp hours at six volts, it's 2.4 kilowatt hours. This is a quick calculation to play to reduce this down to a single number to compare batteries against each other. We're taking a capacity battery, we're reducing it by 80%, and this is what your usable kilowatt hours will be in that battery on a given basis. Then we're, we're, we're timing that by the life cycles, so this battery will, through its entire lifetime, before it, by the time it wears out, will run 2,300 kilowatt hours through it. This is a Trojan L16, basically. Uh, six volt lead acid battery. And price of battery is 375. So guess what? Your cost per kilowatt hour for the wear out of that battery is about 16%, 16 cents per kilowatt. People are like, oh, that's, that's no cheaper than hooking to the grid. It's not. The power you're using through your battery system does cost money in the wear out cost of the battery. Now, guess what? You're not running every single kilowatt hour you use through that battery. On a typical system, say Wilcox, Arizona, by 11 a.m., that battery system is topped off. You've charged it back up from the night before, it's 100%, it's ready to go. Guess what? All the rest of the power you're using, generating during the day, is generally, the term I use is going across the top of the batteries. The charge controller dumps in the system, the inverter takes it back out again. You're not, you're not taking the battery down and then charging back up for that usage. So probably about 50 to 6%, depending on your location, will be across the top of the batteries. You're not paying 16 cents a kilowatt for that kilowatt hour you ran through the battery system. So it's probably more like eight to 10 cents a kilowatt hour. What do we just see uh, a lot of co-ops in lower, cheaper locations are? Eight cents a kilowatt. If you're in Washington, you're paying four or five cents a kilowatt hour for, for power. This is your ongoing wear out cost. It's cheaper to be hooked to the utility grid than it does to put an off-grid system in. 
That's the economics of it. And then our cost for a battery bank, $6,000 for this lead asset thing. Here's a curve right here. You can see number of life cycles. Uh, if you're only taking 20% out, you're clear up about 4,000. If you're taking 80% out, you're down here about 1,200. So a typical bank, you're gonna be running between probably be 30 and 50% any given night, so you're in the two to, two to 2,500 uh, life cycle range. Your lead asset battery is probably gonna last you five to seven years for a battery bank, and then you have to buy another one to replace it. That's the economics of it. And you'll check these graphs carefully when you're comparing different batteries and check the rated capacities. There's quite a bit of variance depending on what they are. Lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion batteries have the advantage that they don't need any maintenance. They're maintenance-free. They're also more efficient. The round-trip efficiency in a lithium-ion battery is around 95%. Put a kilowatt-hour in, take it back out again. In a lead acid, you're down between 80 and 85%. There's a lot of loss in that process. Do we care about it? Not really, because most systems, you're going to be charged up by noon the next day, maybe 2 p.m. All afternoon, you're throwing power away because you have nowhere to put it. So you're not usually concerned about round-trip efficiency in a battery bank because you're oversizing your solar system to the point that it's not particularly of major concern. Guess what? I'll do a little quick calculation here. They're cheaper per kilowatt hour. Lithium-ion has now hit the price point. It's only in the last year or two it has hit this point where it's cheaper per kilowatt hour than lead asset for the lifetime wear out. This little graph here is right off the Fortress Manufacturer's Warranty page. Total lifetime throughput right here, 87 uh, megawatt hours or 88,000 kilowatt hours, whichever way you want to look at it. By the way, you pull out to 90% depth of discharge, you just cut your battery life clear down by more than a third. You pull it all the way down, you're down to one third the lifetime power you can run through that battery. That's why you don't pull it down to 90 and 100% depth of discharge on a regular basis. Can you do it occasionally? Sure once or twice, or infrequently. That's why you keep it above 80%. It lengthens the lifespan of your battery. But here's the catch with lithium. Battery bank, $26,000 rather than $6,000. So you either pay it up front or you pay it out over the lifespan for more lead assets. And at the end of the day, after 16, 18 years, you're at the same price point. But do you have the extra 20 grand day one to buy the lithium battery? That's the question. And that's the real problem with lithium is it's pay now or pay later. You can see there's another calculation. Um, price per kilowatt hour. Uh, lead acid's about 150. Lithium's about 700 to buy it up front. That's the cost per kilowatt, capacity of kilowatt hour you're buying. Stretch it out to max lifespan because lithiums have a much higher life cycle, 6,000 cycles. Ends up being about the same price. Sample system, cabin in Michigan. This is your cheap system. This is your tiny home. This is your little cabin. This is the cheapest little system you can get that will run reliably a few things on a daily basis. Daily power use, refrigerator, one and a half kilowatt hours, tech, 0.5, cell phone and laptop. Lights, a few overhead lights, not much. Water pumping, you're assuming just the house hold use and maybe a little bit of a garden. And another kilowatt hour for toaster and whatever. 4.2 kilowatt hours a day is what we're looking for. If we put this system in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, you're going to be barely making that in January and December. You can't really see the numbers here on the screen, but you're just getting that in the summer months. It's not a problem. That's of a two kilowatt hour solar array. You could probably cut that in half when you live in Wilcox, Arizona, still meet the same daily use. What's our total? Got a solar array. We've got some uh, lead acid batteries here, small battery bank. Got a little high frequency midnight solar inverter, uh, additional charge controller because 2KW is too big for that little combo to handle on its own. E-panel wiring, do spend the money for the e-paneling wiring, it saves you a lot of headache. And a little 2200 
uh, watt Honda generator because you will need that in Michigan in the wintertime to keep your system topped up. Total $6,500. That's your baseline system. That'll run a little tiny refrigerator and some other appliances, and you can live in this with a reasonable degree of comfort. That's your cheap system, $6,500. Instead of going to the high-frequency small inverter, you want to step up to a larger low-frequency inverter, more traditional technology that weighs 60 pounds instead of 20 pounds. Then you're stepping up here, you're spending about another $1,500 total. By the time you buy the more pricey inverter, different charge controller, and different e-panel. So it's an additional $1,500, so you're about $8,000 for the whole system. It's a little different technology. Is it recommended? I'd if I was going to live there for 20 years, I'd go with the low-frequency inverter. I'll probably run 20 years fine. The high frequency, they're supposed to. The jury's still out. They haven't been around that long. We'll find out. Typical house. Back to our 18KW an hour in Prescott, Arizona. What's our total price? 8K solar array, 9600. Inverter. This is a Solark, particularly just thrown on here because it worked fine for this application. About seven grand. Lithium ion batteries, 26,000. Wiring, generator, etc. What's our total? Well, by the time you pay shipping tax and plans on that, you're up to about uh, $50,000. By the way, you get the same 26% tax credit on off-grid systems, just the same as grid tie. So that's something to keep in mind. $50,000 for your typical array. This is why it's almost always cheaper to hook to the grid than go with an off-grid system. If you're going with an off-grid system, you got $50,000 in capital expense. If, you're bringing, if you live in Washington, you're going to spend $1,002 to bring the power grid on your property and paying $0.04 cents a kilowatt. It makes no sense to put an off-grid system in, other than the sake of having an off-grid system. We'll get to that in a minute, backup power. Okay, after tax credit, you're at 37. If I was going to install this pro project in Prescott, Arizona, I'd probably charge about 85,000 contract price. You know, you already know we got 50 grand in parts, and you had to cover some labor, some overhead, getting it delivered on site, everything else associated, and actually make a profit at the end of the day. So that's about your contact price for that system. If you want to save 20 grand, you go off the the, the asset battery bank, just like that. That's the problem with lithium. It's a great system, lasts a long time, no maintenance, costs another 20000 up front. Okay, Sandpoint, Idaho. This is your large house. This is the guy that wants to go off-grid for the sake of going off-grid, and he wants everything along with it. 60 kilowatt hours a, a day, you, daily use. That's easier to do than you think. Throw in a decent-sized house, throw on some air conditioning, some electric heat, or anything like that. Other uh, Other Items, some extra refrigerators, welders, etc. You're 60, hitting 60 kilowatt hours a day pretty easily. You got to put in a big system, 40 kilowatt solar array system, 48,000 inverter, uh, big battery bank, 78,000 for the battery bank, wiring, etc. Generator, you're going to put a diesel one in, so seven to ten thousand dollars. And here we are at the bottom. You're 150,000 $150, dollars for that system and parts. That's what it costs for a large system for a large house in high use. Contract price, probably about 210000 You want to save $60,000? Go up to lead acid batteries. Over to lithium. Even though ultimately over 15 or 20 years it's the same price, it's upfront cost is the hit. Pay now or pay later. Hybrid system. This is one we get questions about all the time. Oh, I want to do a grid tie system to save money because we all just saw that grid tie system is a great money saver. Well, why can't I just throw a few batteries on that have power when the grid goes down? Because guess what? The grid tie system you put on there, as soon as the, as soon as the grid goes down, that shuts down you have no power. It doesn't generate anything on typical application. So let's do a hybrid system. Let's throw some batteries on there. Let's throw some extra capability. So when the power goes down, um, you can have the power for the house. Wouldn't that be great? You got the panels on the roof anyway? Well, the bottom line is basically more than twice the price for the system. 
by the time you put in a battery bank, you put in different inverters, you put in the charge controller, you put all the components together, your system that did cost you, uh, that did cost you 12, 13,000 in parts, because that was a, uh, just uh, not without the, bat the lithium battery bank, but you were 12,000 in parts for the original grid tie system, $38,000 in parts for the hybrid system. Yes, you can save um, you can save probably seven, eight thousand dollars off it with, with lead assets rather than lithium. If you're doing a hybrid system, I would actually, it's tempting to put the lead assets because you're not cycling. Those batteries are just sitting there; they're not being used. They're just in case, so you're not wearing them out with daily life cycle. Then again, it's really annoying to have to maintain batteries over a long period of time that you're not using either. So that's why you end up usually spending the money on the lithiums. Can you cheat and put a lot smaller battery pack in it? Yes, you can. You can put a lot smaller battery bank in a hybrid system because you're not running on that on a daily basis in normal operation. Running your whole house on every day, you want it to be reliable during that time period. This could be just a couple days a year when the power goes out, maybe a few weeks here and there, that kind of application. So you, what, you, what happens when the power goes out? You modify your lifestyle. You don't use electric cooking. You don't run the air conditioner. You don't do those kind of things that use that extra power. So you can get by with a smaller battery bank. So yes, this can be reduced to some degree, but not a lot. This is the problem of a hybrid system. It's a lot of cost that you're not actually using. Can you do power shaving? It's a term is at a high power rate, and you saw the, the graph when we did net, when you did the time of day use where you're buying at this power and at this time of day you're using it, it's a lot more expensive. We can use a battery system where you put power in during the day and then you bleed a little bit out during the night to cover your electric use so you don't pay at that high rate. Can you do it? Yes, you can. Does it actually make economic sense? Not really, because again, you're spending twenty dollars to $30,000 more. And imagine you're shaving a percent, small percentage of your bill every night. That takes years to recoup that investment cost. It's like a 20-year payback. It's usually not worth it. You want alternative power backup? It's $1,200 of a generator, some wiring, and, a, and 20 gallons of fuel. And you can run your house when the power goes out for two or three days, no problem. So you can spend $1,200 and stick that in the garage, and it'll work for the next 10 years. Or you can spend twenty thousand, or you can spend twenty to thirty thousand dollars more, and have a system sitting in the garage that gets used a few days a year. So you just paid a couple thousand dollars a day for your off-grid backup power, rather than twelve hundred dollar one-time fee, and you're done. That's the economics of hybrid power systems. If you want to do them, absolutely. You want to install one? Give me a call. I'm happy to install it for you. Does it make economic sense? Probably not. Does it convenient? If you're in a location where they're turning out powers off for two or three, four days at a time. It starts making sense because you don't want to listen to this running the whole time. That's kind of the basics of the off-grid system for hybrid economics. If you're completely off-grid, the reason you do off-grid usually is because grid-type power is not economical to bring in. You're two miles down the road, it's going to cost you $200,000 to bring the power to the property. You can put an off-grid system in. It's the economics of it. Do you off-grid because you want to? If you had the money, go for it. Absolutely. But from a purely economic standpoint, the reason you're going off-grid is because grid-type power is not economically available to bring in or it's regulatory impossible. We're doing an off-grid system in San Diego right now, of all places, because it's a property behind another property. They put the easement in. Whenever they put the easement in 30 years ago, they didn't write in their utilities. Guess what? The neighbor doesn't like the person building the house behind them. They wanted the utility power back there. Local utilities said, we can't put a line back there if the easement saying utilities can go there. The neighbor said, I'm not giving you permission for that. They got to go off-grid. Power is right down the road. Now they got to spend a fortune on off-grid because the neighbor won't let them run utilities through the easement. And somebody didn't write in the paperwork 30 years ago when the easement was created. That's reason, regulatory reasons why you end up doing off-grid sometimes.
Resources, PV Watts, U.S. Department of Energy, Solar Electric, uh, solar, solar-electric.com is Northern Arizona Wind and Sun. They're an online retailer. They have excellent knowledge base there that you can learn a lot from. They've been around for years. They're an excellent knowledge resource as well as a place to look at pricing for different components. Um, again, these are neither endorsement or it's just information available if you want it. So if you do go to the pvwatts.nrel.gov and spend all your time looking at different systems, what the numbers work at different places around the country. Okay, questions? So if it's not economically worth it, why do people do it? Why do people do off-grid systems or why do they do the hybrid systems? Well, they do off-grid systems because it's not economically practical to bring the grid power in. So in other words, if you live five miles from the power grid, you're not going to pay to bring the power line in. You're not going to pay the $300,000 to bring the power line in. You're going to put an off-grid system in. It's way more economical. But it doesn't make sense in almost all locations to try, if you already have grid power at the property or already installed, there's no sense to cut the line. That's the economics of the off-grid. So the reason you do off-grid in tons of locations is because it's not economical to bring the grid power to that property. It's not already there. That's usually why you're doing an off-grid system. Are there any good reasons to do off-grid otherwise? Good reasons to do off-grid otherwise. Uh, you like the idea of having your own backup power stores. I love that idea. It's expensive, but I really like it. Would I do it if I had extra cash? Probably yes. But from a purely economic standpoint, not really. Do you do it because you want to? you do it because you like the independence? you do it because you think it's cool? Absolutely. Go for it. But you can't justify it from a dollar's perspective, usually. So that's the reason you do hybrid systems or off-grid if you do have grid power available. Any additional questions? The question is, uh, I have to repeat it for the recording. The question is, can you be off-grid in Maryland if grid power is available? I don't know the answer to that. How would one find out? Uh, look at the rules. State law, local utilities, it's probably fairly easy to find out call up a local utility and say, hey, I want to turn my power off. I'm going to go off-grid. They'll say, well, you can't do that. Um, <laughs> it's a transfer switch. You can physically disconnect, but that's not getting ready of a utility bill. That's just disconnecting the power. You can put transfer switches in perfectly legally because power goes out. If you run a generator, you have to put a transfer switch in. So if you're going to do backup power, you have to have a transfer switch because you can't backfeed the grid if your generator power overload your generator instantly because, instantly because all your neighbors are trying to turn on off of your power. So there's locations, even California, where you can't run a generator to replace grid power because it's a environmental thing. But solar, could solar would that, that that concern goes away. So now you, I don't I don't know of a legal reason that you can't cut the line to the utility grid, so to speak. But I'm not familiar with Maryland law. I'm sorry, I I can't sure. definitively give you an answer. It seems unlikely, but I can't actually answer that. Is it's a transfer switch. Basically, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-position switch, so you can either be hooked to the utility or to the generator. You can't be, you can't be both at the same time. It's a safety measure. Can you do the same thing by putting power on your main panel and turning off the main breaker and turning on that generator? You can absolutely do that. If you get the sequence long, you backfeed the grid. What's going to happen? The generator is going to overload. By the way, though, if somebody's down the line working on it, then they'll get zapped. That's the reason for a transfer switch, so you can't accidentally hook your generator to the grid. It's an either-or selection. Okay. But they don't consider that cutting you off. No, you, you, that's, that's transfer switches for backup power. We, you, we put them in all the time for generator backup power. All I know is they're not cheap. You, that, that thing costs a 
No, transfer switch, install, and associate wire, and you're two or three thousand dollars very quickly. Yes. Any other questions? Economics, grid power, solar. If you have a, if we don't have any space on our roof to put it, you have to have stands, stands, and an extra cost. There is the cost for you can can do ground mount for solar. So if you lay back here to start for the grid tie, um, ground mounts just more money. You're about twenty cents per watt for the racking and standoffs for roof mount system. You're about sixty cents per watt for ground mount system. You got to put in the concrete pillars. You have to put in additional framing. It's it's more money, but it's not um, it's not it's not impossible at all. It's just marginally more cost to do a ground mount system. So we do ground mount systems all the time for both grid tie and off grid because they don't have room on the roof or the rooms at the, or the roof runs north south and now you don't have any angle to make sense to get a southern exposure. So yes, ground mounts are a very practical option. Are there, are there better solar panels than others? Are there better solar panels than others? That's a really good question. Not really, yes and no. There are different technologies of solar panels. There's thin film, there's mono, there's mono, there's poly. At the end of the day, they're not necessarily better or worse. You, you know, most of your commercial panels are going to either mono or polycrystalline panels. It's basically the technology they use when they manufacture the silicon wafers and put them on the panel. Is one better than the other? Not really. Is there better brands than other? Yes, there are. There's, there's A-grade panels. Most of them come from... Uh, Taiwan, Vietnam, China, Korea, you name it. There's panels from all those locations, Japan, Germany, even the US and Canada make panels. So you can source from different brands from all those locations. Are ones better than others? Generally not on the high end, higher end, the proper A grade panels. You run into lower B grade panels? Yes, you can get subpar panels. Most panels sold in the US through repertoire dealers are A-grade panels, and they're going to be certified through a laboratory of the production capability, and they're also usually frequently uh, certified for a third-party insurer that they will produce 80% of the rated capacity after 25 years. That's usually what they're rated at. They will, you do lose capacity over the lifespan of the panel, but usually they're rated to maintain at least 80% after 25 years. Why do we price panels per watt? Because we don't care if the panel is a 250 watt panel or a 480 watt panel. We don't care if it's uh, what brand it is. In a sense, we care what it costs per watt to buy that panel. That's, in, that's the rated watt. So it's a, you know a 300 watt panel. If that's its rated capacity, what does that panel cost? You know, 180 dollars, 210 dollars. We break it down per watt price because that's how we price them in the industry. That way, you get an even even pricing across all the different kinds of panels and brands, etc. Good. Do you think it would make sense to assemble your own solar panels? Do, you, do I think it makes sense to assemble own, my own, your own solar panels? Rule number two, what's your time worth? You can buy individual silicon components. You can put them together. Your quality is going to be questionable. And no, you're not going to save any money. You can probably barely buy the components for the same price you can buy the fully functional panel. They're made in huge robotic facilities. Everything's automated. Everything's done at a huge industrial level you know, thousands of panels a day production. I don't think you could appreciably save money doing your own panels. And in addition to that, the panels are only 20% of the cost of your system anyway. So why spend a whole lot of time trying to reduce that by another 15%? It's, it's peanuts on your time for trying to do it. Yes? Are there any panels that, I mean, I've heard that if any shade hits some panels, it takes down the entire... 
shading, okay, questions about shading solar arrays. Yes, so solar arrays are directly affected by shade, and it depends on the, on the options. As we talked about, if you're a roof mount system, you're required to have optimizers on it anyway because of fire, uh, that's like code fire rules. If it's ground mount, you don't have to. The optimizers, if you have a solar edge system for a grid tie, it's a buck and boost optimizer. It'll take that panel and it'll drop it up and down. It's basically zero effect of shading other than you do lose the individual panels that are shaded. Those aren't, don't have any power, of course. However, if you're using the Tygos, you have a little better advantage. Again, the shading doesn't affect it as much. If you're using an older string tile system, which you do a lot of times off-grid, particularly ground mount, the string set, you'll lose the majority of an individual string when part of, that panel, part of those panels get shaded. So you can lose a fair amount of capacity on any given or solar array if you get shading on part of it, yes. Faster than I can write. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll, I'll slow it. Sorry, I was speaking a little too fast. So, bottom line, bottom line is, if you shade, if you shade 20% of an array, you're going to lose most of the capacity of that array, okay. assuming you don't have it split into multiple different mini arrays within that segment, so to speak. So a lot of times you'll have multiple charge controllers, so you have one big block of panels, but you'll have a third of it feeding one charge controller, another third of it feeding another charge controller, and another third of it feeding another charge controller. So you can shade 30% of it here and you'll lose that entire mini yeah. part of it, but these other two blocks are just fine. They're not, they're not pulling those down at all. And you call that sub-blocking? It's not a technical term, bottom line is, just because all the panels on one physical big square area doesn't mean they're actually the same electrical wiring connection. Okay. Because you could be feeding additional uh, charge controllers, et cetera, down the line. Okay. So it could be broken down into sections. So if we, if we live in, like in Maryland, yeah. the best way, I mean, how would we start doing it? Do we, is it best to contract somebody? Or is, it a bit, is there a kit that tells you how to do it and sells you the whole system? Rule number one, do your own research. You can install your own system. It takes a lot of research, and you want to do your research on that. My recommendation is if you're going to move off-grid, not like existing grid yeah. type, but if you're going to move off-grid to somewhere that you don't have grid power at all, my recommendation is that you do install your own system or at least be heavily involved in the process because you are your own maintenance person from there on out. If, you, if it breaks down, you have to troubleshoot it. You have to swap out the component. Can you get somebody else to do it? Absolutely. You can get a guy to drive you know, eight hours out to, to swap out a $200 component. Yeah, you just spend $1,000 for that tech to drive all the way out to swap a component and go home again. There's a $200 part. You, if you knew the system, you could do it yourself. So if you're going to go out quite a ways out and do off-grid system, a off-grid system, I would recommend that you either install it yourself or at least be heavily involved in the installation process so you understand how it works and how to troubleshoot it. Because components do fail. Charge controllers fail. Inverters fail. Things happen. So that you need to be able to troubleshoot it. If you're in Maryland, you already have grid power and you want to do a hybrid system, then you don't have to have that kind of knowledge as much because you, one, techs are probably closer, cheaper to find, and two, um, you're not relying 100% on the off-grid system unless you actually cut the, cut the, the grid. And that, that way, it's not as important to have it up continuously 100% of the time. So that would be my, my recommendation. If you're in Maryland and you have a grid power already, you want to do a hybrid system or possibly cut the cable, and you're not 
already technically savvy in developing it and putting us together, probably get a contract. Is there, is there a, a kit that, you can, you can, the question is, can you buy pre-made kits? Yes, there are companies that will sell you all the components already designed in the kit that will work together and will um, function together just fine, usually with good installation instructions, and you can go ahead and buy that whole kit, but you still have to assemble it, which you have to do all this work to put it together. What did they do? They did the engineering, the back-end engineering. They made sure the, the you had the right charge controller, size for the battery bank, size for the inverter, and it can tell you what your, what your solar array will output, and it'll tell you what your house will use, and everything will be balanced, and it'll work together. They did the engineering. You just have to assemble it. All right, it's going gonna, it's gonna to still take you two weeks to put it together. Yeah, but that cost is not really, I mean, buying the parts individually and doing the engineering yourself, you're not going to save you're not going to save a lot of money over a pre-made kit. No, you're not. In Maryland, though, you are probably going to be in a regular environment. You are going to have to get permits. You're going to have to do those kind of issues. So you may end up having to hire an electrician, hook it up anyway, because you may not be legally allowed to do it yourself. I don't know on Maryland law. So you may just better off going to a contract. Is, is there a pre-made kit you recommend? I don't have pre-made kit recommendations. There are manufacturers. Actually, even Arizona Wind & Sun, I showed you on the last one, does sell pre-made um, packages ready to go. So there, there are pre-made packages. Okay. I don't have a recommendation on any one of them particularly. Because when we do solar systems, we design it from scratch, engineer ourselves, and install it for the customer's needs. Yes? If it snows on top of your panels, you have no electricity. <laughs> so you either have to knock it off. You can do things. If you're in northern climates, Idaho, Montana, you can set the panels at a very steep point because you're not really losing. You're losing a little bit of summer production, but you're gaining in the winter. So you can set them at a very steep pitch, which will help with the snow sliding off of them. But bottom line is if the panels get snow on top of them, they don't make any power. There are some states that won't let you do the electrical work yourself by state law. They have to require a certified electrician to do, do that. Most states, that's not the case. If you're the homeowner and you're doing it yourself, you can do it. But some states, even then, will not allow it. I can't tell you which states those are. I don't have a list. I'm sorry. Yes? I saw this guy on YouTube where he ordered a kit. They sent him the blueprints. He put it, well, he first got the permits for it, sent in the blueprints for it, mm. and they uh, said that he could do it. Then he did it all himself and then hired a electrician to come out and, like, inspect it. And I guess he signed it off. Yeah. There are a lot of states where electricians are required to sign work off that you can contact an electrician ahead of time and ask them if they'll work with you with that, in which case they become kind of like an inspector. You do all the work, they come out, they look at it and say, yeah, this is all good, I'll go ahead and sign this off, and then the county will accept that as an a appropriate sign-off. But you need to clear that ahead of time, find an electrician that will work with you and do that for you. So that is a, a viable option in states with those regulations. Yes. Any additional questions? Or are we ready to wrap it up? So, someone just told me that they had by side solar panels that work on both sides that you just hang vertically and it allows snow not to build up off of it. I, it, I haven't looked in that. Uh, the question is vertically hanging solar panels. 
I haven't looked at that specifically. There are solar panels I've seen that have a prism coating on them. That it will take light from most angles, and they'll, they'll maintain near-rated capacity. If you lived in Alaska, I would totally consider vertical hanging panels because in the wintertime, your sun's so far south anyway, you're basically going to be picking it up as it is. And if a ground mount system, you could engineer it so that you could change the degree of racking winter, summer, etc. Most locations, it doesn't make sense. You just add a few more panels, and it, makes, it eats up any difference between summer and winter. And by the way, it doesn't make sense economically to do. They used to do solar tracking systems where they'd have power systems that would start in the morning and track the sun throughout the day. That's when panels were very expensive. The economics aren't there anymore. You might as well just take, add more panels to make up the different capacity you need. You just have a set angle. A set angle most of the time. If Again, if I lived in northern climates like Idaho, Montana, or maybe Alaska, I would consider doing a, a tiltable array somewhere in winter difference, something you go out and spend a couple hours changing the pitch on. You do it maybe twice a year, not something on a daily basis that would make sense in those very northern climates. Would you say one more time what you said the solar panels had a covering that allowed the sun? There are, I haven't seen them commercially available. I read an article on them where they're, it's basically a coating that goes over the top that has a lot of little glass prisms in it that allow the sun to come in from multiple angles. I don't think they're commercially viable at this point, so I wouldn't count on being able to find them on the market. Sorry. Well, deals will go ahead and wrap up at this point. I am available at the rest of the conference. If you have any questions, come and find me, etc. Thank you for your time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.